We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you, which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, Use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And uh, yeah, if you've not listened to the rest of the book, please go back and listen because we're about halfway through now. And uh, yeah, it's very interesting. It's a really good book. I'm glad that I've not yet seen the film, but uh, yeah, let's get started. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. They take me with the acute sometimes, and sometimes they don't. They take me once with them over to the library, and I walk over to the technical section, and stand there, looking at the titles of books on electronics, books I recognized from the year I went to college. I remember inside the books are full of schematic drawings and equations and theories. Hard. Sure safe things. I want to look at one of the books, but I'm scared to. I'm scared to do anything. I feel like I'm floating in the dusty yellow air of the library, halfway to the bottom, halfway to the top. The stacks of books teetering above me, crazy, zigzagging, running all different angles to one another. The shelf bends a little to the left and one to the right. Some of them are leaning over me, and I don't see how the books keep from falling out. It goes up and up this way, clear out of sight. The rickety stacks nailed together with slats and two-by-fours, propped up with poles, leaning against ladders on all sides of me. If I pulled one book out, Lord knows what awful thing might result. I hear somebody walk in, and it's one of the black boys from our ward. He's got Harding's wife with him. They're talking and grinning to each other as they come into the library. See here, Dale. Black boy calls over to Harding, where he's reading a book. Look here, he's come to visit you. I told her it wasn't visiting hours, but she just sweet-talked me into bringing her right over here anyhow. He leaves her standing in front of Harding, 
and goes off, saying mysteriously, Don't you forget now, you hear? She blows the black boy a kiss, and turns to Harding, slinging her hips forward. Hello, Dale. Honey, he says, but doesn't make any move to take the couple of steps to her. He looks around him, and everybody watching. She's as tall as he is. She's got on high-heeled shoes, and is carrying a black purse. Not by the strap, but holding it, the way you hold a book. Her fingernails are red as drops of blood against the shiny black patent leather purse. Hey, Mac! Harding calls McMurphy, who's sitting across the room, looking at books of cartoons. If you curtail your literary pursuits a moment, I'll introduce you to my counterpart and nemesis. I would be trite and say to my better half, but I think that phrase indicates some kind of basically equal division, don't you? He tries to laugh, and his two slim ivory fingers dip into the shirt pocket for cigarettes, fidget around getting the last one from the package. The cigarette shakes as he places it between his lips. He and his wife haven't moved towards each other yet. McMurphy heaves up out of his chair, pulls his cap off as he walks over. Harding's wife looks at him and smiles, lifting one of her eyebrows. Afternoon, Miss Harden, McMurphy says. She smiles back, bigger than before, and says, I hate Mrs. Harden, Mac. Why don't you call me Vera? They all three sit back down on the couch where Harding was sitting, and he tells his wife about McMurphy, and how McMurphy's got the best of the big nurse. She smiles and says that it doesn't surprise her a bit. While Harding's telling the story, he gets enthusiastic and waves about his hands, and they weave through the air in front of him into a picture clear enough to see, dancing the story to the tune of his voice like two beautiful ballet women in white. His hands can be anything. But as soon as the story's finished, he notices McMurphy and his wife are watching the hands, and he traps them between his knees. He laughs about this, and his wife says to him, Dale, when are you going to learn to laugh instead of making that mousy little squeak? It's the same thing that McMurphy said about Harding's laugh on that first day. But it's different somehow. Where McMurphy saying it calmed Harding down, and her saying it makes him more nervous than ever. She asks for a cigarette, and Harding dips his finger into his pocket again, and it's empty. We've been rationed, he says, folding his thin shoulders forward like he was trying to hide the half-smoked cigarette he was holding. To one pack a day... That doesn't leave a man any margin for chivalry, Vera, my dearest. Oh, Dale, you never have enough, do you? His eyes take on that sly, fevered skittishness as he looks at her and smiles. Are we speaking symbolically, or are we dealing with the concrete here-and-now cigarettes? No matter. You know the answer to the question, whichever way you intended it. I didn't intend nothing by it. Except what I said, Dale. You didn't intend anything by it, sweetest? Your use of didn't and nothing constitutes a double negative. McMurphy, Vera's English rivals yours for illiteracy. Look, honey, you understand that between no and any, there is... All right, that's enough. I meant both ways. I meant it in any way you want to take it. I meant you don't have enough of nothing, period. Enough of anything, my bright little child. She glares at Harding a second, then turns to McMurphy, sitting beside her. You, Mac? What about you? 
Can you handle a simple thing like offering a girl a cigarette? His package is already laying in his lap. He looks down at it like he wishes it wasn't, then says, I always got cigarettes. Reason is, I'm a bum. I bum whenever I got a chance, while my pack lasts longer than Harden's here. He smokes only his own, so you can see he's more likely to run out than... You don't have to apologize for my inadequacies, my friend. It neither fits your character nor compliments mine. No, it doesn't, the girl says. All you have to do is light my cigarette. And she leans so far forward to his match, that even clear across the room, I could see down her blouse. She talks some more about some of Harding's friends, who she wished quit dropping around the house looking for him. You know the type, don't you, Mac? She says. The hoity-toity boys, with nice long hair, combed so perfectly, and the limp little wrist that flips so nice. Harding asks her if it was only him that they were dropping around to see, and says that any man that drops around to see her flips more than his damnedest limp wrist. She stands, suddenly, and says it's time for her to go. She takes McMurphy's hand, and tells him she hopes to see him again sometime, and she walks out of the library. McMurphy can't say a word. At the clack of her high heels, everybody's head comes up again, and they watch her walk down the hall till she turns out of sight. What do you think? Harding says. McMurphy starts. She got one hell of a set of kebabs, is all he can think of. Big as old lady ratchets. I didn't mean physically, my friend. I mean, what do you... Hell's bells, Harden. McMurphy yells suddenly. I don't know what to think. What do you want out of me? Marriage counselor? All I know is this. Nobody's very big in the first place. It looks to me like everybody spends their whole life tearing everybody else down. I know what you want me to think. You want me to feel sorry for you. To think she's a real bitch. Well, screw you. And what do you think? I got worries of my own without getting hooked with yours, so just quit. He glares around the library at the other patients. All of you, quit bugging me, goddammit. And sticks his cap back on his head and walks back to his cartoon magazines across the room. All the acutes are looking at each other, with their mouths open. What's he hollering at them about? Nobody's been bugging him. Nobody asked him for a thing since they found out he was trying to behave to keep his commitment from being extended. Now they're surprised at the way he just blew up at Harding, and can't figure the way he grabs the book from the chair and sits down and holds it up close in front of his face, either to keep people from looking at him, or to keep from having to look at people. That night, at supper, he apologized to Harding, and says he don't know what hung him up at the library. Harding says perhaps it was his wife. She frequently hangs people up. McMurphy sits, staring at his coffee, and says, I don't know, man. I just met her this afternoon. She sure as hell ain't the one been giving me bad dreams this last miserable week. Why, Mr. McMurphy, Harding cries, trying to talk like the little resident boy who comes up to the meetings. You simply must tell us about these dreams. Wait till I get my pencil and pad. Harding's trying to be funny to relieve some of the strain of the apology. He picks up a napkin and a spoon and acts like he's going to take notes. Now, precisely, what is it you saw in these, uh... Dreams. McMurphy don't crack a smile. I don't know, man. Nothing but faces, I guess. Just faces. The next morning, Martini is behind the control panel at the tub room, playing like he's a jet pilot, 
The poker game stops to grin as it act. Ground to air. Ground to air. Object sighted for 1600. Appears to be enemy missile. Proceed at once. Spins a dial, shoves a lever forward, and leans with the full bank of the ship. He cranks a needle to on full on the side of the panel, but no water comes out of the nozzles set around to square tile in front of him. They don't use hydrotherapy anymore, and nobody's turned the water on. Brand new chrome equipment and steel panel never been used. Except for the chrome, the panel and shower look just like the hydrotherapy outfits they used at the old hospital 15 years ago. Nozzles capable of reaching parts of the body from every angle. A technician in rubber apron standing in front of the other side of the room manipulating the controls on that panel, dictating which nozzle squirts where, and how hard, how hot. Spray opened soft and soothing, then squeezed sharp as a needle. You hung up there, between the nozzles in the canvas straps, soaked and limp and wrinkled, while the technician enjoys his toy. Eeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee